Well, congregation, we've come now to that point in uh, our life as a church in which uh, we are just hours away from our celebration of the coming of the promised seed. And over the weeks of Advent, we have considered these different covenants, all of which we find come to a point of resolution and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's run through them again quickly. Remember Abraham. In you, God said to Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Paul wrote in Galatians 3 that the fulfillment of that promise was the preaching of justification by faith alone to all the nations of the earth, to Gentile and Jew alike. And so from Abraham there came uh, a blessing to all the nations by a justification in the person and work of Jesus. Then you remember the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, a very different covenant, where God made promises to his people, but this time he conditioned them on their own obedience, that they could dwell in the land, not blessings of salvation, they're never conditioned on obedience, but God promised Israel life in the land, flourishing in the land of Canaan, if they would obey his commandments. They would be a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. And written all over the Sinai covenant, written all over Israel, is failure. Failure. Then we came to the covenant that God made with David. And the covenant that God made with David teaches us to fix our eyes on the son of David, whose throne will never end. Remember, God promised to David a dynasty that would never end. A son of David would be sitting on his throne forever and forever. And that taught us to look for the son of David. And we saw how the New Testament authors, Mary, not just the New Testament authors, but also Mary and Zechariah, Simeon and Anna, right? They were all looking for that son of David whose kingdom shall never come to an end. Well, today, my friends, we come to consider the last then of the Sometimes these these are called the historical covenants, like God's covenant with Abraham and Israel and David and Noah and so forth. Historical covenants because they actually happened in time. And remember that all these covenants are just manifestations of the larger covenant of grace that God made with his son Jesus Christ in eternity past for the salvation of his people. And as I said, uh, each of these historical covenants then is just like another chapter that God opens in the book of his covenant in the book of his, uh, his plan of mercy and salvation to his people, he opens up another page, <clears throat> another chapter. Well, we come then to the last of these, and that is what's often called the New Covenant. The New Covenant. It's mentioned mostly by the prophets. It's the prophets that primarily speak about this New Covenant. And of course, the prophets never speak on their own. right? They only speak the word that they receive from God. And so this is God speaking through the prophets of a new covenant. Now, to understand the new covenant, we first have to understand Jeremiah. Because it's largely through Jeremiah, not only by any stretch, but it's it's, uh, most clearly given to us by Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. So let's consider quickly the man Jeremiah and and the ministry that God sent him to perform. Now, the first thing that we'll say about Jeremiah is the message that he had to bring. Now, uh, you can imagine getting a call letter from a church 
And suppose that they put, this will be your message that you will preach. And of course, this is not from a church. This is from God himself. In Jeremiah 1 and verse 10, God says to Jeremiah, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Now, what a discouraging message to bring, to be told that the thrust of your message is going to be one of destruction and judgment. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. That's not the kind of message that a pastor would hear and think, well, I I can begin my ministry with great enthusiasm and excitement because I have such a wonderful message to bring. No, God has told Jeremiah, this is what I'm going to, this is the word that I'm going to put into your lips. It's going to be primarily one of plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. Now, there are also those two last verbs, right? To build and to plant. And that's that's what we're going to see this morning as well. But still, the message that Jeremiah is given is not a positive one. What about the man himself? Was Jeremiah a man of great courage who would stand before kings? I don't think so. You can see in verse 7 and 8 a different story. In chapter 1, Jeremiah 1 and verse 7, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. It seems quite likely that Jeremiah objected to the call of God by saying, I'm just a young person. I'm just, I'm not a strong, courageous man to stand before people like Elijah. Well, not always, but usually Elijah was a very bold man that stood courageously before King Ahab and told him the truth. But Jeremiah says, I'm not that kind of person. So Jeremiah doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be a preacher of judgment Right? In the Reformed tradition, we think of men like John Knox. Right? John Knox, who stood before Queen Mary and pointed out her sins. We think of Martin Luther saying, Here I stand before Charles V and the whole diet of worms. Right? And we think of many other men who, who just didn't seem to fear. Well, that's not Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not that kind of individual. He sees himself as a weak, young person, not capable of bringing this message. And yet God calls him to do it. Well, what can we say about the audience of Jeremiah? Well, stay in Jeremiah 1. And if you look in Jeremiah 1 and verse 18, again, what what lovely words for a a prophet to hear. And again, I'm being a little facetious here. What lovely words to hear. This is going to be your audience. First, now, and again, Jeremiah 1, 18, Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land against, don't don't miss that word, against, against the whole land. So everyone is going to be against you. And it continues, to the kings of Judah, so the kings are going to be against you, its princes, its priests, and to the people. Oh, there's nobody left. That means all of Israel is going to be against you. You're not going to find friends. You're not going to find any comrades. You're not going to find that one person who will stick by you and say, stay strong, Jeremiah. They're all going to be against you. Now, in the second place, they're going to fight you. Verse 19. Again, I'm in Jeremiah 1, verse 19. And they will fight against you. Now, God gives him a promise, but they will not overcome you. But still, what a ministry. 
What a ministry to be called to. They're going to fight against you. Now, if you go in Jeremiah chapter 2, you find what might seem to be kind of an encouraging thing, that these people are, there's no shortage of religion. There's no shortage of religion amongst these people. In fact, when Jeremiah brings his message, some of the people object. You can see one of their objections in Jeremiah 2 and verse 23. Jeremiah 2 and verse 23. How can you say, I am not defiled? And again, it's the Israelites speaking here. When Jeremiah brings his message, the Israelites respond, How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. And, he, and Jeremiah goes on to convict them. In other words, these people are like, what do you mean? Why, why are you saying we're defiled or we're going after the Baals? We're serving the Lord. We're going to the temple. We're doing the prescribed sacrifices. We're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. If you turn to chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 20, Jeremiah is speaking. Jeremiah 6 and verse 20. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Mount Sheba and the sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Again, congregation, in terms of Jeremiah's audience, there's no shortage of religion here. These are all religious people. They're, they're, they're following all the, the jots and the tittles of the Mosaic law. They're doing the sacrifices. They're, they're, they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. In fact, they're even going a little bit beyond because it says, for what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba? In other words, they're ordering the super high quality frankincense that they're going to burn in their incense cups to God. No shortage of religion. So what's the problem here then? Well, in Jeremiah 2, back to Jeremiah 2 now, and verse 34, Jeremiah 2 and verse 34, their religion is a fraud. It is purely an external religion. Because as soon as they get away from the temple and out of the sight of others, we read in Jeremiah 2 and verse 34, also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. You did not find them breaking in. But in spite of all these things, yet you said, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned away from me. But again, dear congregation, God sees their sin. They're oppressing the poor. The lifeblood is of the stained blood. Maybe they tried to wash it out, but it's on their skirts. And the all-seeing eye of God can see it. They're hypocrites. This is hypocrisy. Now, in terms of Jeremiah's audience, my friends, you know, in so many respects, it's a hundred times more difficult to preach to people who already regard themselves as religious. I wonder if you've had that experience in your own life and witness. When you come to somebody who's living a life of sin and they're living a life of debauchery and you preach to them, in one sense, evangelism to that kind of person is so much easier than to the person who says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. My, my sins are forgiven. I, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. But their life testifies that they don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not have a relationship with him. They're not walking with him. It's so much harder to evangelize religious people who are living a life of hypocrisy than it is the life of the open, profligate sinner. And so this is Jeremiah. He's a weak man in himself. He has a message of plucking down, plucking up and destroying. And he has an audience who pride themselves on their religion. They don't see any problem. Well, what is the conclusion then? Again, in Jeremiah 2 and verse 22. 
Read with me this. Jeremiah 2 and verse 22. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. God had given his covenant to his people Israel. He had given them his laws and his statutes. And Jeremiah says, you people are hopeless. Your sin is so deep-seated, it's rooted so deeply in your soul, that no matter how hard you scrub yourself with lye and with soap, you can't wash away that stain. It's hopeless. This is one of the verses that we often turn to when we talk about total depravity. Total depravity. And you see that here. Jeremiah knew it in in an experiential way because he had the experience of preaching to people who were totally depraved and and who could not bring themselves to meet the expectations and the laws and the commandments that God had placed upon them at Mount Sinai. You know the repeated phrase in the Old Testament, right? Israel is a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, right? They're, They're so locked up in their sin that they can't extricate themselves from it. Well, then that brings us to what we read this morning. And maybe you thought that Lamentations 1, that's quite a, quite a chapter to read on Christmas Eve. But you see, my friends, I, I chose Lamentations 1 because this brings us exactly into the place where we need to be to understand God's new covenant. The new covenant that God made with, with his people must always be placed over against the Old Covenant. Now, my friends, you've got to be careful here because you might think that the Old Covenant is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And indeed, that's the Older Covenant. But again, in Scripture terminology, the Old Covenant, or the First Covenant, is always the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Again, I, I like to call that the Sinai Covenant for obvious reasons. Now, the Sinai Covenant. What was the result of that covenant? Now, we've already talked about this, right? Israel failed. It was a failure. Israel's sin was so deep-seated, so rooted in their souls, that they could not, they could not, no matter how hard they tried, no matter what temporary successes they might have had, they always slid back into sin. And what was the result then of the Sinai covenant? What was the final result of it? Lamentations. Lamentations is a record of what happened with the Sinai Covenant. How did that work out? Verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow. And again, you know the rest of the chapter. We read it together. That, my friends, is the result of the Sinai Covenant. A desolate city. The city of Jerusalem used to be bursting with people. There was so much activity there. Such a lively city it was. But look at it now. Do you see, my friends, in your mind's eye, Jeremiah? He sits outside that city. Perhaps he sits on some hill outside the city of Jerusalem. And he looks at the city. 
He looks at the smoking heap of rubble that it has become. The temple has been destroyed. The temple which could not be destroyed in their thought and mind. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they would say. As long as the temple of the Lord is here, we're safe. Well, look at it now. It's destroyed. It's a smoking heap of rubble. And there sits Jeremiah on the hill outside Jerusalem with his head in his hands, weeping. And that's why we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. My friends, that is so important that now you see how the Sinai covenant ended. How lonely sits the city. I'd ask you this morning, my friends, to put yourself in the shoes of Jeremiah. With all the hopes and the fears, all the covenant promises that were stirring around in his head. And now he sits there and he looks and he sees it all come to an end. It's all been dashed to pieces. Nebuchadnezzar has come and he has gone. The last of the people have been taken away into exile. Now Jerusalem is a home for birds and for for jackals and for mice and rats. There's nothing left of it but a smoking pile of heap of rubble. And written over the city of Jerusalem, my friends, the smoking heap of rubble is this. Sinai. Sinai. I'm sure it seemed to Jeremiah as if it was completely over. Finished. Done. There was nothing left. Of course, Jeremiah didn't have the book of Galatians, which teaches us that whatever happened to the Sinai covenant, there was a previous covenant that God had made. And that covenant could never be ended. Maybe Jeremiah knew it. Maybe he didn't. But at any rate, God spoke to Jeremiah. Would you turn with me to Jeremiah 31? Here is now the record of God's new covenant. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Here's this man. Likely this is even after the city has been destroyed. Maybe even while Jeremiah is sitting there, watching and looking with despair at the smoking heap of ruins, God speaks to him and says, Behold, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. I did put these verses on the outline as well, if you can, you can read them there. But my friends, this now is the covenant that God was making, would make with his people. It is a new covenant. It is a new covenant. It will not be, again, it's important that you see the contrast, it will not be like the failed covenant at Mount Sinai. 
It's not going to be like that one. It's going to be a new covenant. Now, let's consider then these blessings of the new covenant. And I see four of them. Children, on your outline as well, you can write these out with me. The four blessings of the new covenant. Now, in the first place, we read in verse 32, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. What does that mean? My friends, that means the law of God. Notice, by the way, that God doesn't dispense with his law. He doesn't say, well, I'll I'll get rid of the commandments. I'll make them much less strict. I'll just give you a few commandments. No, it's the same law, but God says, I'm going to write it on your heart. In other words, it is going to be internalized. It's going to now become an inner conviction from your own soul. To put it very simply, now you will want to keep the commandments of God. It won't be something that you're brought to, compelled to do, because you have to do it, forced to keep the law of God. No, it will be your own inner desire, your own inner conviction to keep the law of God. So in the first place, The law written on the heart, or the law internalized. The second blessing, the second blessing is, in verse 34, no need for teaching. Verse 34, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. So no need for teaching. There won't be a need for what I'm doing right now. Because everybody will know the Lord. Everybody will understand God. They will all know him in a saving way. Right? And let's be sure we understand here that the knowledge of God spoken here is a saving knowledge. Everybody in the kingdom of God, everybody in the church will be a true, regenerate, born-again Christian. There will be no difference between the visible church and the invisible church. Every single person, all the people of God, there will be no hypocrites. They will all be true and born-again Christians. That is the second blessing. No need for teaching. Now, the third one is, is not so different from the, from the second one, but I just wanted to highlight that. From the least of them to the greatest of them. So no need for teaching, but every single one, from the smallest infant to the oldest member of the congregation, all the people of God will know God in a saving way. And this, this means congregation in a true saving way, not simply that they profess to be Christians, but that they really are, in heart and soul, true, real, spirit-filled Christians. And finally, the last of these new covenant blessings, the fourth one, forgiveness. At the very end of verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Isn't that interesting, congregation, how God puts those two things together? That God will forgive their sin, but I'm not going to let you forget it, or, or I'm still going to hold it against you somewhat. No. God won't even remember that you committed it. And of course, God, now speaking as a human, God will forgive your sin in such a way that he will not even remember that you committed it. Their sin I will remember no more. In a simple expression, my friends, the new covenant, I put this on your outline here, an easy way, I think, for all of us to remember the blessings of the new covenant. Past sins forgotten. Past sins forgotten. 
future obedience ensured or guaranteed. Past sins forgotten, future obedience ensured. Now we can also ask the same question that we've asked the previous covenants. Who keeps this covenant? Well, this covenant will not be like the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. Because this, my friends, is something that God will do. God will write his law on our hearts. God will forgive our sins. God will no longer remember them. This is a covenant that God keeps. This is, you might say, the flowering of the covenant of grace. Because it's truly grace, isn't it? Now it's grace. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now later, of course, Paul is going to teach us in Galatians 3 that really the new covenant is just the Abrahamic covenant brought back again, restored to us again. You might say the Sinai covenant has been taken off it. The burden of the Sinai covenant has been removed and the Abrahamic covenant is restored. So we might actually better call it a renewed covenant. A renewed covenant. And this, my friends, is the the covenant upon which every one of us is under. This is the covenant that we live under. We live under the terms of this new covenant. Thank God the law, the Sinai covenant, has been taken off us. And we're no no longer subject to its terms. We do not have to earn our right to know God. But it is a free gift of God's grace. Now, some of us might wonder to ourselves, but we do have a visible church and an invisible church. We know that there are still hypocrites in the church. Well, my friends, the fulfillment of the new covenant began in Bethlehem at the manger, at the first coming of Christ. That's why the new covenant is so bound up with Christmas. But it is not completely fulfilled. It will not be completely fulfilled until the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, right? When the all-seeing of God, eye of God will purge out all hypocrisy from his church. And everyone, from the least to the greatest, will serve the Lord with a true spirit and with true faith. And their sins will be remembered no more. Well, my friends, we come to the point of application on this wonderful truth. Our failure and Christmas. You know, uh, Reverend Klein asked us last week, do you remember that? Reverend Klein asked us last week, do you know what made the first coming of Christ necessary? And remember that his text at that time was Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, now, my friends, we have a repetition of that thought. Because the reason for the new covenant is because of Israel's failure to keep the old covenant. And what is true in the history of Israel, dear congregation, must become true in our own experience and by our own conviction. That we also have to recognize within ourselves that we fail to keep God's commandments. And we do not have the possibility, naturally, within our own selves, to live up to God's standards and to his expectations. Israel's failure is our failure. And just as the Apostle Paul taught, our failure locks us in because we have nowhere to turn. We're at the end of our own resources. We have nothing 
left to save for ourselves. We have nothing that we can turn to. We have nothing we can take hold of under the old covenant except to cry out for mercy, except to cry out for grace and to look for someone to stand in our place. And so the new covenant, my friends, also brings us to the manger of Bethlehem. Because in that infant, in that infant, we have to, we have to pin all our hopes upon him. That he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that all the obedience which we owe to God, he will perform on our behalf. And just like children cling to the skirts of their mother, so believers have to cling to the skirts of Jesus Christ. He's the hero. He's the captain for us, my friends. And it's only as we are clinging to him that we can find approval with God, that we can be accepted by God. And this is the preaching of the new covenant, that God makes a new covenant based not on what we do, on our covenant keeping, but a covenant, hallelujah, congregation, a covenant based on Christ's covenant keeping in our place. And God gives, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit dwells within us. And one of the blessings of the new covenant is the law written on our hearts so that when we receive the Holy Spirit by being joined to Jesus Christ, again, we only can receive the Spirit by being joined to Jesus Christ by faith, then we receive the internalization or the law written on our hearts so that we begin to keep the law of God not from compulsion, but because of our own desire and delight in it. The psalm that we sang this morning gave us this question, Who, O Lord, with thee abiding in thy house shall be thy guest? Who his feet to Zion turning in thy holy hill shall rest? Who, congregation? That was the question at the center of the Sinai covenant. It can't be you, it can't be me. We certainly don't have he that ever walks uprightly does the right without a fear, and so on. But how that drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ and how it drives us to rely upon the Spirit working within us to give us the desire to do those things which God expects us to do. What do we call that, kind of, uh, children, in your Sunday school and catechism classes? I think you learned that term, did you not? Regeneration. Regeneration. A new heart. A new heart. A heart that loves the law of God because God has remade it. He's given it a new birth. My friends, in the second place, humility. This new covenant brings us to humility. What a deeply humbling doctrine this is, dear friends. What a deeply humbling doctrine this is. Because again, as we were reminded last week and again this week, the new covenant is only necessary because we failed to keep the old covenant. And we cannot keep the old covenant. We cannot measure up to God's standards. The covenant of grace is for covenant breakers. Listen to that, congregation. The covenant of grace is for covenant 
breakers, covenant failures. How unseemly it is when covenant breakers who are saved by grace lift themselves up in pride and in arrogance and live a life not in keeping with the fact that we are failures, congregation. Isn't that maybe the most frightening word in the English language, failure? Can we all own up to it this morning? Or is there still too much stiff in your neck? Too much stubbornness and obstinacy that we can't sign our name to our own death sentence? That we can't sign our name to the fact that we are a failure? I am a covenant failure. And that's why I can only be saved by the covenant of grace. What an unseemly, what an ugly, what a vile thing, my friends, when a sinner who's been plucked from hell by the grace of God lives a life of pride and arrogance in relation to his fellow man and fellow woman. These things ought not so to be, congregation. And we have a problem with that in this congregation. We are a proud people, congregation. We don't have to look one bit past these doors. We are a proud people. And it's not fitting, congregation. It's not fitting for covenant failures to lift up their head in pride. And we need to think about that. This should have its effect morally upon our heart and life, congregation. That we should walk out of this church as humble people. We should walk out of this people with Simon Peter Go away from me. Depart from me, Lord, he said, for I am a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a covenant breaker. Paul boasted in his weakness. This hymn that Isaac Watts gave us, When I survey the wondrous cross in which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. How many of us has learned that lesson in the school of grace? And this quote from Richard Baxter, would you read it with me? He says, look to a humbled Christ to humble you. And again, just think about Christmas. Think of that infant. Think of the Lord of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, lying in a cow stall. Look to a humbled Christ to humble you. Can you be proud while you believe that your Savior was clothed with flesh? and lived in meanness, and made himself of no reputation, and was despised and scorned and spit upon by sinners, and shamefully used and nailed as a malefactor to a cross? The very incarnation of Christ is a condescension and humiliation enough to pose or to baffle both men and angels. We're astonished that, that the Lord Christ would humble himself so much. Transcending all belief, in other words, we can't believe it, but such as God himself produceth by his supernatural testimony and spirit. And can pride look a crucified Christ in the face or stand before him? Did God take upon him the form of servant? And must thou domineer and have the highest place? Had not Christ a place to lay his head on? And must thou needs have thy adorned and well-furnished rooms? Must thou needs brave it out in the most fantastic fashion? And read there, fantastic, like a showy, ostentatious fashion. Instead of thy Savior's seamless coat, doth he pray for his murderers? And must thou be revenged for a word or petty wrong? Is he patiently spit upon and buffeted? And art thou ready through proud impatiency to spit upon or buffet others? 
Surely he that condemned sin in the flesh condemned no sin more than pride. To take those questions, congregation, and to lay them before the Lord in prayer would leave us in a very different place than we often find ourselves. I speak to myself this morning as well as to any one of you. Oh, to look with faith upon the mangled form of Christ, bruised for our iniquities, smitten for our our sins, and then to have pride in our hearts. What a wonderful antidote against pride it is to look upon Christ in all his humiliation and to know that he did all that for covenant failures, for covenant breakers like you and like me. May God bring us, my friends, to that place for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this message. And Christmas, Lord, is is such a happy time of year. But there's so much in Christmas, Lord, that humbles us deeply, very deeply. There's so much in Christmas, Lord, that leaves us ashamed, profoundly ashamed of ourselves. You gave us a law, O Lord, to keep. And it was a perfect law. It It was meant to restore us, to bring us to life. So deep-seated is the depravity and wickedness in our own hearts that we fail to keep it. We fail again and again and again. Lord, how glad we are for the gospel, which teaches us that you will make a new covenant with your people. A covenant, Lord, where you will write your law and all your expectations upon our hearts so that we may keep them gladly and that our old heart may be taken from us And we may be given a new heart and a new spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, desiring and delighting in your commandments, so that we can say with the psalmist, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Lord, I pray that you would work these things in our hearts, that you would give us repentance, Lord, when it is not this way, and that you would give us once again to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to find in him all that we need for soul and body, in life and in death. Lord, we commit ourselves into his hands this morning. We pray for your blessing also as we gather for worship this evening. Lord, bless our brother as he preaches to us. We pray, Lord, that we would have a hunger and a thirst for your word, and that your name would receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn now in the blue hymnal to number 394. A new covenant prayer. Spirit of God, dwell thou within my heart. Let's sing the five verses of 394 in the blue hymnal.
Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen.